Recording from the Sunshine City, St. Petersburg, Florida, overlooking beautiful Tampa Bay, this is the Sonography Lounge, sponsored by Gulf Coast Ultrasound Institute. This podcast is dedicated to medical professionals and patients around the world interested in diagnostic and interventional ultrasound. Our podcast will discuss everything ultrasound, from news, trends, career paths, new technology, and industry updates. Hosted by Lori Green and Tricia Rio of Gulf Coast Ultrasound Institute, they bring over four decades of experience in the ultrasound profession and are here to guide you through this journey. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Sonography Lounge podcast. I'm Trisha Rio, your host, and I'll be co-hosting tonight's episode with Lori Green. Hey everybody, thanks for joining us. All right, so you know we talked about all things ultrasound, but tonight we have two uh, amazing gentlemen with us for our happy hour series. So we are just sitting back after emergency medicine and critical care course and having a few drinks, and we are going to discuss some cases. So I am here tonight with Dr. Alexander Levitoff. He is a professor of medicine at East Virginia Medical School in Norfolk, Virginia. He is also a registered cardiac ultrasound sonographer and author and co-author of several books, including Critical Care Ultrasonography, and bedside ultrasonography in clinical medicine. He lectures extensively in the United States and internationally, and we're always thrilled to have him join us. We also have with us tonight Dr. David Banner. He is a professor in the Ultrasound Division Director Department of Emergency Medicine at The Ohio State University Medical Center in Columbus, Ohio. He has published more than 60 articles on point-of-care ultrasound and education and has lectured internationally and nationally on this subject and continues to champion clinician-performed ultrasound for better patient care and patient safety. So welcome, gentlemen. Yep. Thanks hey for there. joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. So tonight we are going to just basically discuss how ultrasound has impacted your patient care, how you use it to improve patient outcomes, and why you think ultrasound is a great tool in the emergency and critical care arena. Good. Okay. All right. <laughs> Let's go for it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Absolutely. So who wants to kick us off? Well, Star, thanks so much for having us. We're really excited to be here. It's uh it's been amazing to see how ultrasound has changed over the last 25 years that I've been practicing. And I started before there was really ultrasound um, in the clinical care. And, and it's, it's just amazing how the technology has always outpaced education. So what I've tried to do with my career is really try to put it into the educational framework in the medical school and residency and fellowship and train attendings and come train people that want to use it at the bedside. But it's been an amazing tool, and it's just a, it's 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 a lot of fun to see how it's uh, it's really transformed care because now you can look underneath um, the skin and see what's 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 going on underneath. And so um, I'm really happy to be here. It's really changed a lot of patients that I've taken care of and people have um, that I've taught taken care of. So um, it's an amazing tool, and it continues to get better. So excited to be here tonight and talk to with with all of you. Awesome. Yeah. So. ICU is kind of its own uh, country in so many ways, lives by its own <laughs> rules. Yes. <laughs> certainly, um, certainly um, ultrasound, and we've been doing it since really dinosaurs roamed the earth. <laughs> you can obviously relate to that in, in a simple way. Um, I would not even attempt critical care rounds without an ultrasound present in the room and used on every patient. Or our fellows are mandated to be ultrasound proficient a year before or within a year of fellowship completion, they are required to take echo boards uh, for the ultrasound. And uh, we can maybe get that first case because it's so fresh on my mind from about two weeks back. Okay, sure. So we can look at that. So I'll give a little prephrase to the case. Uh, we were consulted. So my fellow said, oh, there's a lady with a low blood pressure. And we were asked to do thoracentesis. If you look at the image, don't believe your own eyes because in fact the consult was for thoracentesis. Uh, so 
I said the fellow will continue rounds without you. Why don't you look? The patient is hypotensive, and perhaps you should take a good look at her chest. And this is the, actually, I think it's a butterfly cloud image that he sent me out of the patient room to my computer. Oh. <laughs> and I said, well, maybe thoracentesis is not the right thing to do. Yeah, so for those of you who are unfamiliar with this, this is a echo image of a patient heart. Um, and what you're seeing, the large ventricle on the posterior portion of the picture is the right ventricle. And you have, I'm sorry, the left ventricle. And you have pericardial fusion all the way around the, um, the heart. So actually, it's a larger fusion. It doesn't scream tamponade until you look at IVC condition, which is... Um, which is actually shows a considerable increase in right ventricular pressure. And also in the later images where you see a right atrium quite a bit better, you can see it's collapsing. Mm. And um, the thing with pericardial tamponade, you always want to turf it to somebody else uh, for <laughs> pericardial synthesis <laughs> because you just don't want to get yourself involved in it. But in this case, we had to do partial pericardial synthesis. Um, it was fairly clear that it's a malignant pericardial effusion from a large esophageal mass. Um, there was a, actually a left-sided pleural effusion there as well, which is not uncommon. I had nothing to do with it. I didn't even make it a part of it. So if you can look at the images with the uh, inferior vena cava and also the one with the collapsed RA. You do see a little bit of paradoxical motion of the right ventricle, though. You do. You do. On it almost image. looks like two systoles. Mm -hmm. So obviously the... the uh, Obviously, it's a job description of the right ventricle to get smaller and systole. Oh, here it, you oh. can really see that. And that's within a minute of that previous image. So here you can see fairly well almost the diastolic collapse yeah. of an RA. Oh, of an RV. RA is kind of out of the plane. Aren't these a lot... Uh, uh, preload dependent that you could give them a little bit of fluid to temporize the situation and perhaps delay or was it obviously already full? You could, but but it's it's kind of inevitable pericardial synthesis. As I said, as much as I dislike doing pericardial synthesis, uh, if I can get somebody else to do it, this this is one case where you you just have to. Um, so we got a cardiologist immediately involved, and he was kind of warming up the cath lab to do it, but we decided uh, to put an angiocath. I don't have it uh, on there, but we took a little bit. The total fluid was there, 400 cc's. So that's half a quart. Did you go wow. sub-xiphoid or We always change? go sub-xiphoid because then you can see your own image in there. Uh, here's that IVC, which is kind of looks at you. And talking about that new thing about venous access ultrasound, it in reality is, has nothing to do with the venous access. It's a condition of RV. And here you can see that that RV is failing because nothing gets in there during diastole. It's just IVC sits there with just looking at you. Um, and that's one of the indicators of pericardial tamponade or RV pressure being so high that you have to do something about it. What do you guys think of that liver in the interior portion of the image? It doesn't look healthy. No, it doesn't. <laughs> and that might be Maybe the part of that mass. Yes. Uh, that, um, that esophageal mass uh, getting there. Uh, into the liver. You, you obviously don't pay much attention to those. Now I can see that almost yeah. no, nodular in a couple of spots, but it didn't impress me back there because yeah, had other things we had bigger questions to take care of. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And but the main thing was 
I only work three days. Let, let, let her not die within the next three days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've seen cases, though, where the IVC is um, collapsing. So somebody came in with shortness of breath, and they, the, the doctor that had been treating them thought it was uh, fluid overload and give them all these diuretics. And so they had pericardial tamponade, but they were volume Diary depleted. And so on those kind of cases, you can give some fluids and temporize the, the need, but it doesn't look like you have much room on this case. Much, It's already full. Because all you will do is kind of make paradox more paradox. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So without ultrasound, how would you have made this Should diagnosis? The, the, Should without be the ultrasound yeah. immediately done there, it will be a coroner's, coroner's case because she was less than 24 hours in the hospital. It would have been solved by autopsy, almost without a doubt. Well, it's amazing where, when, what time patients present. And so if they present during weekdays, during business hours, it's, it's better outcomes. But if it's, if it's late at night and it's on the weekends, That's a weekend. you know, it's like, how do you, how do you make this diagnosis? Because if you don't have bedside ultrasound. And a lot of that is consult juggling mm -hmm. as well. So let's find something where we can consult it out. Mm -hmm. uh, so a proper consult would be to a cardiologist here. Well, I think there was a paper in the past talking about unexplained dyspnea, and when they put a probe on the, the chest, that they found all these pericardial fusions. And so sometimes people aren't even suspecting that. And, but if you don't look, you know, don't know. And it sounds like this is one of those cases that the chest x-ray was misleading, and they thought it was a Plural fusion and it turned out to be pericardial. And actually, the functional outcomes, notwithstanding the, uh, notwithstanding that being a cancer, but functional outcomes, even in a code from pericardial tamponade, is one of the best. So, pericardial tamponade tends to, even if ACLS was a part of care, tend to do very well. Uh, if pro appropriate pericardial synthesis is done, even if it's done during ACLS. Okay. Awesome. Great case. Yeah, yeah. great case. All right, you want to move on to the COVID case? Sure. It's just a demonstration. So I had a pleasure of running a COVID ICU that induced me uh, to retire. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> and, uh, what, what I just want to see here, uh, show here, there are sev several, uh, several uh, reasons of where the, uh, uh, to where you you anticoagulate COVID, almost irrespectively of anything else. We did it by the D-dimer. If the mm -hmm. D-dimer was mm -hmm. uh, was more than two, really two and a half, they all were uh, they all were anticoagulated. You can see a massive amount of um, echogenic material going through inferior in the cava. You see the right ventricle being reverse ratioed here. You can see on top the right ventricle again being almost bigger. Ventricular interdependency where the septum goes, the beautiful D-shaped mm -hmm. uh, yeah. uh, left ventricle, so all signs of pericardial tamponade. It happened to uh, to be a COVID case, but it can be... Pulmonary embolism, not pericardial yeah. tamponade. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah. sorry, yeah. My brains don't work as good as they used to be <laughs> younger. But uh, yeah, so it's obvious uh, pulmonary embolism... Um, it's also some mystery about anticoagulation and pulmonary embolism, and I don't know if you experienced it, uh, but theoretically you should get nothing from heparin because it doesn't really do anything. It stops you from forming more clots. Mm -hmm. It certainly doesn't eliminate any clot, but just by the time that TPA would come to the patient bedside, they feel so much better after you start heparin, I suspect there is some uh, vasodilatory effect or some other effects rather than anticoagulation that does it. In this case, actually, this patient did end up with, uh, 
with the intervention of uh, with an intervention. So they did the direct thrombolysis and um, and the suction thrombolysis, and she have done well. Um, the lady so so happened to be twenty five weeks pregnant. Well, it's amazing. We have that service at our institution, ECOS, at, uh, on those sub on those submassive uh, PEs that you can go and um, instead of giving systemic TPA, giving it focal. On this image, it's fascinating because that whole uh, IVC is full of echogenic material. You see the right ventricle uh, large. And I was thinking about before ultrasound how we try to make this diagnosis. It was so difficult because you had somebody that was extremely ill, you're getting your chest x-ray, and before the high-resolution CT scans, now they're very common, but it was back in the 90s, it was it was difficult, and ultrasound has really transformed this diagnosis. I, there's a mystery about um, clinical diagnosis of pulmonary embolism, and that it's simultaneously over-diagnosed and under-diagnosed, and it's difficult to imagine how it's possible, but it's exactly, it's suspected in the cases where it's not there a lot, and then it's missed in the cases where it's there a lot as well. So it's a mysterious illness that way. In fact, the only secure way to diagnose it at bedside will be ultrasonography. There's no other clinical indicators to that. I don't think it's a clinical diagnosis. I think they mentioned it like at autopsy that there's like 5 to 10% of uh, people that have died and they didn't know why in the hospital and it's due to PE. And I find that fascinating because we have such a high suspicion for it. Yes. And we're always testing for it. But despite that, there's, we're still missing it. So, Yeah, it, it's a mystery to me of how the same illness can be simultaneously over and under diagnosed, but that's exactly what it is. On these images, it's I, I try to teach the students. I think the, a plumber should really be teaching in medicine because there's a lot of plumbing in mm -hmm. medicine where things are getting blocked up and then everything behind it is getting larger. Not only that IVC, but you saw that right heart, it's large. And then the pressure of that uh, low pressure right heart is pushing so much because of the pressure making that design. And you can see a physiology there because no matter what your ejection fraction is, if there's nothing in diastole, your stroke volume is going to be zero, mm -hmm. and you can see it there. So left ventricular stroke volume is obviously dependent on the on diastolic feeling on left ventricular preload, if you wish, and um, particularly on the short axis. The next image you can see it really well. Right. So you can't have a pr anything in terms of stroke volume, because there's nothing to push out. Yeah. I also like on that long axis view, it's amazing how the knowledge has increased. You're looking at that long axis view and that one-to-one-to-one -one -one ratio yes. of the LA, the AA, and the RV, and that RV is really generous. Yes. Um, and that is a matter of suspicion on that one. And then there's diagnosis. For those who are interested in some sort of certification, the D-shaped left ventricle made it to every boards that I'm <laughs> ever aware of. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Even medicine, actually. But it's it's so interesting how that diffusion of some of this information, it's probably been in some of the cardiology circles for so long, but now that's there's been interest in critical care and emergency medicine. 20 years ago, I don't think we were doing this, but now it's become common knowledge because that, that knowledge set has infiltrated and it's been very helpful for all these people who are trying to make these diagnoses mm -hmm. to look at some of these same views and see some of these common patterns. Yeah. A lot of our participants today after the Rush lecture you gave were like, wow, I just... I, I, I never heard of the rush or I am not using the rush. I feel like I'm doing my patients a disservice. It's amazing how you're opening the eyes to these physicians and these healthcare providers by doing what we're doing here at Gulf Coast mm -hmm. and giving them the tools that they need to help these patients. Because I, I just don't know how you would ever make a diagnosis like this in a timely fashion without it. I, just, I well, can't see it. There's so many ways that ultrasound can help, but I really think on the most critically ill patients, when somebody's trying to die in front of you, you cannot send them somewhere to get some more imaging. There's not the consultants at some times when they're they're sick. And ultrasound is a tool, but I think it was in certain circles 
and they were using it, but the, some of that knowledge did not diffuse into all the areas of medicine. And, and what point-of-care ultrasound has happened is that it's spreading out into all those people that can use it. Um, and that's one of my reasons for trying to train medical students. I think they're like pluripotent stem cells the first year, and they're going <laughs> to turn into every type of physician. <laughs> And so when you teach them early and they start to then say, hey, I'm not so afraid of this machine mm -hmm. and all the buttons and knobs. Mm -hmm. But when you try to teach attendings, they're so smart and they don't, but they look at ultrasound and they're afraid of the machine. And it's really a technophobia. I think that they're more afraid of the machine than, than anything else. And, but the, it, it's, it's, been, it's been amazing to see the technology improve and especially with the AI and some of the things that's making it even easier for some physicians to start to learn this. But it's... Uh, well, two things here. First of all, the guy who was a pioneer in ACLS, ultrasound guided ACLS, I don't know if you're young enough to not know him, Raoul Burkholz. Oh, yeah, Raoul yeah. Berkowitz, yes, from so, Germany. From Germany. The fear his, protocol. His, 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 his favorite statement always has been the death big in the x-ray department. <laughs> <laughs> so, You've seen that, unfortunately. Yeah, you yeah. sent them down there for the cat scan that, that knows what's happening, particularly the critically ill. The second one, I think that the younger folks, like medical students, even some of the younger residents, as opposed to the attendings, uh, they grew up fighting aliens on a screen, mm -hmm. it's much easier for them to get adapted to the screen knowledge mm -hmm. and the technology and pushing buttons yes. than the attendings that are preoccupied with stethoscope and looking at the chest films and stuff. In fact, even worse, the attending were the anatomists when we started a medical school program. Well, there could not be a liver on top of the heart. Uh, so the anatomists were going completely nuts, where for the medical scene was nothing. It just that's how the things are. And obviously, talking of so xiphoid view, but anatomists will truly that will break their brains. <laughs> they can't do it. It's amazing. And uh, I gave a talk twenty years plus ago to the Association of Anatomists, and they were wondering how they could be more clinically relevant. And one of the things is they used to do all the cross-section looking from the head down, while all the imaging on cross-section for CT is looking from the feet up. And uh, ultrasound was a way that they could be clinically relevant. And I think some of them that we've known have really embraced that and, and used it in teaching anatomy. But the challenge in medical schools, it was a zero-sum game. If you wanted to put something in like ultrasound, everybody was like, well, what are you going to take out? And I don't think it was like that. I think it could be ancillary and it could help them learn anatomy. Toward your point about Raul Bertkowitz, he, was, he really pioneered um, ultrasound and cardiac arrest. And I remember teaching with him at one of the critical care uh, uh, societies out in San Francisco. And his first protocol was called FEAR. But I think people were afraid of that, so he changed it to feel. <laughs> and it was focus, echo, and life support. But the thing that really was that he was remarkable was um, in the code situation, it's really important to, to continue chest compressions. Yeah. And when you're doing those pulse checks, having a 10-second window where you're doing pulse checks. And so he had a systematic way that if you're going to be doing ultrasound to really get everybody in the room, we're going to be doing an ultrasound in 30 seconds and knowing who is doing what role – but a lot of times when people are doing ultrasound, everybody stops and forgets what's going on with the code and what's going on, on the screen, what's happening. And what he was really focused on is we're going to be doing ultrasound, but we're going to be getting back in the chest in 10 seconds. And I think that's really – ultrasound can be very helpful, but a lot of times people are like get enthralled with it. Hey, what's it show on the screen? And forget about the medical care that needs to be happening at the same time. So He also was one of the first guide, guys – that I know of that used model patients to teach it and in a real way because he'll have somebody with peri peritoneal dialysis, mm -hmm. tell mm -hmm. them not to drain, and then mix them up oh. in a mass casualty <laughs> uh, <laughs> drill or uh, somebody with pulmonary yeah. hypertension. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it was pretty good. I think a lot of people kind of doing it now. Talk They're, about a curveball. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you have to diagnose with ultrasound and know to have your priorities. Yeah. 
which was, I think, pretty good. Well, I don't know what he's doing Coming now, back but, to yeah. the Rush exam, you did that lecture today. You opened that lecture with a case study, which I felt was, it really opened. I saw many of the participants in the room, their eyes got real big, and they were kind of like, I- I've done that. I've done that to a patient. So it was a case study where you kind of went through, and the underlying theme of it was that the patient was given fluids when they shouldn't have been given fluids. So can you kind of take us through that? Well, we don't have the images, but it's maybe. interesting. Um, I was just walking by an emergency department, and so um, I've been known to like ultrasound. And so one of the attendings, like, I have a sick patient, and we have been trying to resuscitate them. Could you take a look? Because uh, the CT scanner was down, and we think it's a PE because they're short of breath and uh, asked me to go in. And so um, I had written a protocol before Rush called Trinity, and I was trying to do some of those those images and trying to look. And so I just clipped them all together and it put the whole case into context. And so it lasts about two minutes, but you're looking at the heart to see how that's functioning. And then you're looking at the inferior vena cava, and that was large. And so you knew that uh, the fluid status, that it was uh, the tank was full, if you will. And then looking at various other areas, looking at the right upper quadrant to see if there's fluid there, then looking at um, the pleural uh, fusion views, and you see what we call wet curtain where you have B lines coming, and so they have some interstitial edema bilaterally. Um, And then finding out the reason they're really hypotense is on the left side that there was a pneumonia, and you have the spine sign uh, above that diaphragm. You have a consolidation, some dynamic air bronchograms. And then a wet curtain where there is fluid in the interstitial space. And then while we were doing that exam, the patient coded and lost uh, vital signs. Um, We immediately went to uh, ACLS and started chest compressions. And during that time, I'm in there with ultrasound, so we're watching the chest compressions, um, get the patient back. They were intubated. um, And... Um, getting the chest x-ray, and there were three chest x-rays I didn't show, where when the first patient came in and then the subsequent chest x-rays where you start to see pulmonary edema and curly beelines on the chest x-rays. And I think a lot of times people will start resuscitating with fluids when somebody has a low blood pressure. But we become more sophisticated. That was over 20 years ago, but we become more sophisticated. Why is the, the blood pressure low? Is it because the pump is not working? Is it because the tank is full? Or is it something to do with, as the Rush exam talks, with the pipes or the, the vasculature? So it's just an amazing tool, but I'm not sure everybody uses that way. They, they look at maybe one area, and that was a more comprehensive way of looking at this patient. Um, and if you wanted to get some technologists, come, and you'd have to get the vascular tech to come look at the aorta. You'd have to get the echo tech to come look at the heart and maybe a radiologist and that's why this is so powerful, is that this tool can empower the clinician to become a sonologist. And, and, and it's, it's just amazing in the critical care area. So in, in ICU, that is scenario which is known as an iatrogenic saltwater drowning. <laughs> uh, so we encounter it quite often. Uh, and, uh, of course, the whole field of bedside ultrasonography gave the totally new tool and the totally new meaning to fluid resuscitation. It came from absurd, like 30 liters in three days, to something that makes sense and tailored to patient actual uh, cardiopulmonary condition, Mm -hmm. I should Mm -hmm. probably call it, because there is an interact. So now we have that ability to actually tailor fluid resuscitation to a patient not just proclaim that there is there is that there is no bad water uh, because there is certainly a lot of bad saline uh, where you end up with bad outcomes, not so much because of the illness but because how we attempt to cure it in the um when I was in training, I think that uh, in the SICU, some of the same patients that were in the SICU and the MICU and the SICU, they would try to keep them full fluids, and the MICU would keep them dry. And I think it's, and it was before you had ultrasound, and we used to do uh, uh, Swan Gans catheters to try to understand this. But there's different strategies, and now with ultrasound, we can know what's going on with the patient by directly looking. And it's the hemodynamic monitoring that you're seeing after you've done an intervention. How's it working? Um, 
that's the amazing part of ultrasound is that you can continue to uh, to look and see how your intervention is either working or not and, and looking at the vitals as they're improving. Yeah, in fact, the technology now is evolving to indwelling TE mm-hmm. where you can do an intervention and immediately see what the left ventricular result of this intervention might be. And it's probably going to continue that. So we anticipate probably some 3D penetrating into the bedside ultrasonography. We'll have better and better understanding of what our interventions actually do uh, with hemodynamics uh, rather than just think that we're doing something that is particularly good for the patient where it might not necessarily be. I think a lot of people start understanding it better and better that uh, you need uh, some sort of a follow-up of your own interventions rather than making up your mind and doing something. Right. All right. Well, we have uh, another case. Casey's bringing that up. Why don't you talk us through this? Yeah. So this... That looks abnormal. Yeah. It's it's another young (laughs) lady (laughs) who happened to have a stroke at, I believe, 24 and um, this is a right right atrial myxoma and probably a PFO with it because you can see the atrial septum falling in with paradoxical systemic emboli. Uh, So that that was uh, sent to a surgeon and, uh, and that has been removed. I believe she ended up on for some time on um, anticoagulation, then had menorrhagia, and the anticoagulation was stopped, and she did well for quite some time. But just as a, I think, a very impressive thing. Again, the diagnosis took five minutes to be made. Um, right. And without ultrasound, how would you have done that? Um, I don't know. You probably got a cardiologist involved because all uh, all uh, all strokes get an echo, but it might have been a day delay. Mm-hmm. It usually, is uh, if it's a weekend, it might be a two-day delay, and by that time you might have end up with a considerably more neurologic deficit, which is what you don't like. You look at that, and that's been there for probably years. And it's just amazing because I think the technology is getting so much better that they're talking about, you know, diffusing out into primary care and some others and wondering if this could be picked up, you know, uh, before it gets to this stage. And I think that lady actually had a TIA some time back, uh, at which time for some reason... They thought it of being something else and didn't do an echo. So that's where the uh, ultrasound made it one obvious, two immediately curable. Right. This all reminds me of uh, some years ago, it's been a while, but the AIUM ran a campaign on uh, do ultrasound first. Yes. And I really thought that that would really take off. I mean, I think it has, but, but, this definitely, all these cases and everything that we've been discussing really um, demonstrates that that's probably the way to be thinking when someone comes in that's unstable or in critical care or whatever that situation is, that taking the time to just do a quick ultrasound can eliminate so many different scenarios and streamline that that, uh, patient's uh, course of care. And the the, uh, standards in medicine also tend to kind of sit there for a while. They say that uh, that medicine changes one dead doctor at a time. <laughs> uh, and it kind of maybe that's why we don't see more of a proliferation of bedside ultrasonography in medical profession. It makes so much sense. It have made sense for the last 30 years, certainly 20 for sure. And it Somewhat amazing that it wasn't, it didn't gain an exception that it should have gained. 
Well, I, I don't know. It's a paradox in my mind. I, I don't well, understand. Well, there was a gentleman named Everett Rogers who talked about the diffusion of innovation, and I think he described this in the 1960s and said that there's different um, stages of innovation when an innovation comes on um, onto the scene, and that cohort needs to be able to understand it to try to um, accept it. And so he said these five stages, there's innovators, early adopters, early majority, late majority, and laggards. So if everybody's not on email right now, they're probably a lagger, but not maybe everybody's on Instagram. When you think of ultrasound, the technology has outpaced the education. So the technology has come onto the scene. So not only the technology had to diffuse into medicine, and it has, but then the concept of a physician performed ultrasound was really radical. In the 20th century, when we started doing this, it was done by imaging specialists, and there were turf battles. Um, I think that's why the AIUM, in I think it was 2014, talked about early ultrasound or, or ultrasound first. And I remember writing to the leadership saying, okay, that's the year of ultrasound, 2014. What happens on January 1st, 2015, after the year is done? And trying to think ahead, and I think it's a really important because these kind of cases, my dad was a surgeon, would always talk that disease has a beginning, middle, and an end. And it's very easy when somebody's hypotense in front of you say, hey, they're really sick. How can ultrasound help? But there were some maybe precursors ahead of that time that maybe if you had early ultrasound. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, is not everybody knows how to, to do this. And that's why I've tried to put it into medical education. But to your point, there are a lot of people that are set in their ways of this is how things are supposed to be been done. But it's such a technology that's it's an amazing way and it can really make a difference uh, very quickly. And some of these cases show that. Yeah. Right. And the miniaturization of the uh, ultrasound systems is mm -hmm. definitely helping out with some of the specialty practices that really could benefit from utilizing ultrasound in their private practices so that they can um, direct their patients more appropriately and not have to wait for an x-ray to get done mm -hmm. or a CT to get done, or maybe that would help them to better direct them to have a CT or MRI if they need it. But I think some of the specialty groups, um, like primary care and family practice, who haven't been as quick to adopt ultrasound, that we're seeing uh, a lot more primary care and family I practice physicians utilize it or try to learn how to use it yes. anyway. First of all, in America, we live a dream. Everybody knows it. If you ever been to any place from Africa to, to, to China, even uh, Southeast Asia, uh, whatever, Tibet, Pamir Mountains, uh, you know that the world doesn't live like we do. And I think one of the most democratic uh, invention in medicine is bedside ultrasonography. You can take your ultrasound, it's relatively mm -hmm. cheap. A lot of uh, the ultrasound manufacturers make it particularly available to underserved communities around the globe. And you can have a proctoring where the world authority on a particular image can go in and look at your images anywhere from uh, space, from the, mm -hmm. the uh, space station Freedom to Himalayas to, 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 to Kalahari Desert and you immediately can make a diagnosis that otherwise would be unobtainable, period, because they don't have a CAT scan, and they barely right. have an X-ray machine that was built by British in 1948, and, um, which is, I'm actually <laughs> citing a specific <laughs> incident. But here, uh, but here you can adopt it, whether you live in uh, sub-Saharan -Sub Africa or you live in uh, under terribly underserved areas, uh, you can always find an application that will definitely improve life. And it's very democratic in a sense that is available to the communities that no other technology will in foreseeable future become available. Yeah, absolutely. I've been advocating my whole career for them using ultrasound guidance for dialysis access. Because I see so many, you know, in my time as a vascular tech in a vascular surgeon's office, I saw so many fistulas that we worked tirelessly to develop just be trashed by poor access. Yeah. And it's just like, if you would just use an ultrasound, you would not do this to this poor fistula. And it's the patient's lifeline. 
It's incredible. Well, well, the challenges on that is that is that you, and it's great to try to teach attendings, and you can teach an old dog new tricks, but that dog needs to be motivated. Right. And that when was... you when you don't start early, and they don't have it in medical school, when they don't have it in residency or fellowship, and now that is changing, but the pace of it is so slow. And with, like you said, it's so obvious how important and how impactful this can be, um, but it's not there in their training. And so they do things based on how their mentors taught them. And so they get into a habit, and this is how I've been doing it, and it's worked. But they're not seeing some of these nuances. But it's coming around. It but, is, but, yeah. I, but, I, but I think the pace of it is slow compared we need to, pick to it up. how it is. That's why we should start from medical school and residence, because nothing is more motivating to the attending than the medical student going, I just did an alter. What? You don't know what I'm talking about? Multiple people and said that today. I am here because I'm tired of my residents Absolutely. outperforming of me. We've heard that a lot this yeah, week in the we class. Have, yeah. And there are, you know, some older attendees that are here. And um, they basically, you know, said, this has opened my eyes. I feel a lot more, you know, we have the ultrasound machine. I've gone to a couple courses here and there, a little weekend things. But this has definitely opened my eyes and the um, skills training that I've had has given me the confidence, which is that's really the key thing is they need the confidence to know that if they're going to scan someone, that they are going to be able to identify the anatomy, recognize normal versus abnormal. They might not know what the abnormality is, but they know it's not normal, right? And then kind of go through that list of differentials and put you know, put the pieces of the puzzle together to figure out what's going on with the patient so they can get to the most appropriate care. And they, you know, that is what our goal here at Gulf Coast has always been to bridge the gap between education and technology. And that's really what we're dealing with here. And I think that a lot of times, even, even definitely with the older generation, but even some of the, um, now not as much because they are getting in their residency program, but there are a lot of um, emergency departments out there and critical care units that are not using ultrasound and it just blows my mind and it, I think it's fear it is fear that they just are afraid they're not going to be able to learn it but it's all about motivation yeah. passion recognizing the value and and these cases and the discussion have definitely you know demonstrated that it's this is an invaluable tool to to have and to learn how to use it appropriately well, it's, it's interesting that competency for anything is attitude, knowledge, and skill. And unlike 25 years ago, there was so much knowledge out there on small videos and different things and courses that people can take. But I think uh, people, as they get further in their career, get set in their ways, and then they get a little bit of fear of new knowledge. And um, But I think that they don't have the mentorship. And I think that that's why some of these courses or when you're trying to explain something that people – they just have some of those fears and their attitudes. They don't believe in themselves, but they're so smart and they can manage things without ultrasound. If you gave them the ultrasound results, they uh, know how to manage yeah. the case. Mm -hmm. And so what it really is is the acquiring of the images. Yes. That's, that's it. And that's why I've always respected sonographers mm -hmm. because we don't ask the CT tech, hey, what do you see? Can, but the sonographer comes after hours <laughs> and we're like, hey, what was that cholecystitis? And yeah, and they'll tell you. And so there's a lot of respect for the sonography profession because of their skill set. And it's, uh, um, I, I'm hoping that there's more educators out there that can kind of address some of that fear. But I agree with you. I think that there's a lot of people that aren't using it that could and it could really help them. Yeah. I hear a lot of uh, the attendings say it's time as well. They're, they don't utilize ultrasound because, well, I have 20 patients to see. I don't have time for that. But I, I just don't see that as being accurate. There's always time to do a five-minute scan. And that's where... Things like Medicare and reimbursement would help a lot. Mm -hmm. And that's another, I think, a lack of financial motivation because in capitalism works because there is such thing as financial motivation and it's just not there. Though, again, the probably impact of being motivated in that sense would be enormous. Yeah. And there are obviously so low hanging fruits like a triple A. Yeah. Everybody mm -hmm. knows screening. Mm -hmm. That any family practitioner I can teach a bunny rabbit with three carrots <laughs> to do a triple A <laughs> ultrasonography. 
It, I'd like it, to see that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be our next podcast. Yeah, we'll do uh, a video podcast of that. That's to be a smart buddy. But, uh, <laughs> but anyhow, you could. That there are some things that will be a backdoor introduction of it that is extremely simple. The, the, the learning curve is, is a remarkably fast uh, that you can probably start from uh, motivating people. And once they see the power of it, they'll kind of do it more and more. But it's very difficult to make people think about something that they get paid not to think about. Well, it's it's also interesting how um, I think the reimbursement and the time and what you're utilizing your time for. And then I think that I saw a stat that something where in the 1990s we had done 3 million CT scans. And then by 2005, we'd increased to 60 million CT scans. So a significant increase, but there wasn't an increase in patient outcomes. Um, but CT is so easy to do. And it's, it's so reliable, no matter if they're 300 pounds or 150, while ultrasound is so operator-dependent of who's behind the probe. Are they getting the right angles, the right windows, knowing how to do this? Because it's one thing if you can you know what you're doing and you can get those images. It's another thing that if you're uh, getting uh, wrong images and you're misinterpreting, because that's the most dangerous thing about ultrasound is misinterpretation. So... Um, there's still a long ways to go, but I just wonder a hundred years from now, looking back at our society, what people are going to look at and say, you guys knew that radiation damaged tissue. Why you continue doing all these CT scans and ultrasound, I still think will be here a hundred years from now, especially with AI and things. And, but there's a knowledge gap and I, and I'm hoping that we're trying to break that down. But after 20 years, I think we'd have been farther along. And I think the evidence that it will be there. Now you look at the uh, molecular ultrasound, mm-hmm. tissue densities, uh, delivery, ultrasound or drug delivery, delivery of drugs. So there are a lot of stuff that's going on above and beyond, uh, above and beyond of what we already adopted mm-hmm. that, that will be there propelling it into the future. Non-reflective ultrasound. HIFU. Yeah. Um, it's just amazing uh, the one company that uses CMUTs, the micro-machined ultrasound transducers that have decreased the price and, and people have talked about those then becoming part of textiles and wearable ultrasound. And um, I think there's a lot of exciting things about ultrasound, especially with the AI with like uh, on some of these cases, auto uh, VTI for, or auto EF or auto B lines and um and I think some of that language is, is diffusing out there and people are starting to realize as the technology improves, but um, there needs to be uh, some more concerted efforts like that year mm-hmm. of ultrasound and, yep. and, and revisit agree. that. And, mm-hmm. and, and that's my, my, my whole uh, mantra is instead of having CT first, could we have ultrasound first and then the CT as a rescue? Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's so many people that don't really feel comfortable with it. And so well, I think- we'll just start our own movement. <laughs> that's right. Absolutely. Well, you know, and I think uh, something that's very empowering in that regard is um, patient education as well, because as the public becomes more aware and educated on the benefits of the use of ultrasound, and we're seeing that already, especially like in um, musculoskeletal ultrasound and things like that, 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 um, that once the patients realize what the risks are involved in having multiple CTs over and over. People who have kidney stones, and every mm-hmm. time they go to the ER, mm-hmm. they get in a CT yeah. and not realizing what the risk mm-hmm. factors are involved with that. And when we could do an ultrasound and in five minutes, you know, have an answer to that. And more important, people are realizing that. And I think the more that the public is educated, then they start kind of de- demanding, like, why are we doing this? You know, don't you do ultrasound? And if the direct appeal to the patient wouldn't work, then why I see drugs on Animal Channel, which is about the only one I really watched, Mm -hmm. uh, Animal (laughs) Planet, and every other advertisement is Mm -hmm. a direct appeal to the patient. Talk to your doctor about Mm -hmm. so-and-so. You Mm -hmm. might die from it, but it will fix right. your eczema, so talk to your dermatologist <laughs> about that. I know. <laughs> the list of... I'm not I know. Up. You yeah, actually yeah. go No, I know. You list, they go through this whole long list of all the complications and risk involved in taking yeah. it, but like you're going to have clear skin. Yeah. 
And that sounds direct appeal to the patient might be yeah. in so many ways the key. Right. You guys and remember that fat uh, drug ally? Remember oh, that yes, one? yes. And on the label, it clearly said may cause anal leakage. <laughs> yeah, oh, everyone yeah. took it. <laughs> Why would you take something that says that? <laughs> oh, yeah. I, mean, I think they just jerked it off within the last Probably. three days. Oh. It was really recent. Oh, wow, it was recent. recent. Wow. Yes, we'll have to really? look that up. Wow. It was yeah. very recent. I don't think anybody took it uh, <laughs> after a couple of doses. Wow. I presume particularly the public. Uh uh, but yeah. no, I don't think it's officially there. Sounds messy. But if you look at a lot of monoclonal antibodies, the uh, the side effects are spectacular, and they still oh, have a direct appeal. It's revolutionized critical care because now we deal with so many side effects yeah. of drugs that weren't there. But again, direct appeal obviously worked. Yes. Absolutely. Even so. if not in the way I'd like it to. Yeah. Well, this has been great. Yeah, I've, been I've really enjoyed having this discussion. I think we're running a little bit out of town, time, but we could we could have multiple uh, episodes on just the same topic, you know, and go on and on and on. But um, I want to thank you both for um, Dr. Levitov and Dr. Boehner for joining us today. And um, it's been very enlightening. I hope that our audience has enjoyed this. We thank you for uh, listening to us today, and we hope that you will subscribe and follow us on social media so you don't miss another episode. And happy scanning. Happy scanning. Thank you all. Thank you. Thanks. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Sonography Lounge. Don't forget, if you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram at Sonography Lounge and Twitter at Sonography LNG. If you have any questions, comments, or topic suggestions, feel free to send an email to us at sonographylounge at gmail.com. Have a great week and scan, scan, scan.